you're probably a lot better at pronouncing my last name than like me myself sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just usually end up spelling it for people because uh, <laughs> the pronunciation does scare. Uh, it's good to see people who have their cameras on and good to see people's names, meaning that their presence is among us. So that's good. Um, and good to see people that maybe we've never even met before. I hope everyone is doing well. It is the last month for most of us with uh, this semester or this term, uh, or maybe for someone like Beatrice, it's a break before the next hurdle of a term or a semester. So exhausted as we are, or maybe drained, or maybe inspired and motivated to continue as much as we are, let's um, enter today's message uh, with an open heart, because I do think that even as I was preparing, uh, there were a lot of things that spoke personally to me that um, I've been trying to understand. Um, and I hope that this passage in and of itself speaks to you even more so than um, some of the points that we'll be making today. But before we do that, let's pray, uh, humble ourselves, listen up and see what God in his goodness reveals to us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we... We honor you, Lord, because we worship you as our only God. We understand that at the same time, we uh, get distracted by values and um, goals and perhaps aspirations of the things that we would like to have, the things that we already have, um, the things that we um, are promised to have. And a lot of those things Lord, we understand, uh, overwhelm us, distract us, pollute our eyes, and turn us away from you. So at this time, we come and we kneel. And we want to take the next um, X amount of minutes to understand who we are, understand what we're capable of, um, and credit all of that ability and capability only to you. Amen. Because you created us, and in that creation, you called us good. And for that, we are grateful, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okie dokie. I'm going to share my screen. And I will probably be using my phone to <laughs> read the outline because my other device is dead. So we'll enter into the, right, straight away, we'll enter into the passage, no introductions. We'll enter into this passage this morning from the audience's perspective, which is a lot of the times the perspective that we take uh, because uh, as we sort of sit back and look at Jesus's ministry, his interactions with people, it is the most natural um, first step before we enter in and say, okay, well, who are we in the story and who is Jesus in this story? Let's just take a uh, brief uh, analytical sort of exercise and think, okay, what's going on and um, what does it mean? So someone approaches Jesus, stops Jesus actually, and um, there isn't really much of an introduction and they uh, come to Jesus 
that they being a man actually identified in the Bible, a, a man stopped Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And that is the question. It's not really much of an introduction, like I already said. But remember that most of the time when people approach Jesus, they don't really introduce themselves. And we remember the story when Mary comes to Jesus, Mary, his mother, and says, Jesus, there isn't anyone. That's not even a question. That's a statement. So Jesus is pretty used to these sort of uh, abrupt entrances of other people. So the man stops Jesus and he frames his question in the singular in several ways. First, he names the good thing. That's singular, that's a singular noun. Must I do, being a singular pronoun in the first person, to gain eternal life? One, not lives, one life, implying that single life. So the stranger comes to Jesus with a genuine desire to do something. How does Jesus respond? And Lydia read for us this morning. Jesus picks up on that first part of the question and says, why do you question me about what is good? God is the one who is good. And if you want to enter the life of God, just do what he tells you. Jesus knows that rather than addressing the personal inquiries of that person, he needs to get down into the root of it all. And it's laid out in an interesting way. First, because it might be referring to the creation narrative in Genesis, because you, like we said, God called it good. When he saw creation, he called it good. And so Jesus says in that second half of verse 17, God is the one who is good, sort of flipping it over, but ultimately pointing out something extremely, extremely theologically deep. Ultimately, we know that God created good and it is a reflection of who God is. And that's exactly what Jesus is suggesting here. But then in the third part of that statement, he says, if you want to enter the life of God, is that what Jesus is implying about eternity? When we talk about eternal life, is Jesus suggesting that eternal life is life in God? Well, what does that mean? I think it means a whole bunch of things, but Jesus actually summarizes it summarizes it this way. It's obedience, right? Life in God is obedience. And that's kind of a yucky word that we don't really like to hear. And so we come next to this sort of uh, intersection point where the man is actually very open and asks an open-ended question, kind of seeking clarification. What in particular? He doesn't, he's not coming with an agenda anymore. And Jesus responds to that open question with the commandments, right? Which ones? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as you do yourself. And these are the commandments, but notice these are not all 10 because you have all 10 in front of you. They're the ones that are in the second half, the six left over. What about the first four? Well, perhaps by omitting them, Jesus is suggesting something about what it means 
to live a life in God. But the young man's response is probably, in fact, what all of us could say today, if not entirely, at least partially. I've done all that. What's left? I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I don't lie. Maybe sometimes. I try to honor my father and mother most of the time. And our church is really big on loving our neighbor as uh, we love ourselves. We've been talking a lot about that. So we've kind of been, you know, checking off the marks. We're good. But this is exactly what we would have said. I've done all that. What else is left? And that's where Jesus gives him a new commandment. And that's actually really funny because it reminded me of uh, when I lived with my parents. And, and especially in the summer, which is quickly approaching, um, we would do like family trips, but then there would be that like one period in the summer where nothing was happening. And that week or 10 days felt like eternity because just every day you woke up, it was hot and there was nothing to do. And so we would complain most of the time to our mom and say that we were bored. And this was actually, especially when we were living in the United States, uh, because there's entertainment all around. And as soon as you're bored, you go and complain. And my mom, being the loving mother that she is, always found something for us to clean instead of taking us out to do something fun. In my parents' house, they kind of figured it out. Boredom is a recipe for chores. And I think they found that in like a parenting book or something. But here, this is exactly what the young man is saying. He says, Jesus, I've done all that. What else is left? I'm, I'm pretty good with the commandments. I've been to uh, the synagogue or the place of religious worship, wherever he had attended. And I've been living a good life. Look, Jesus takes personal. What's left are the other four commandments, right? but they're deeply personal, even though they're actually talking about God. If you want to give it all you've got, Jesus responded, go sell your possessions, give everything to the poor. All your wealth will then be in heaven. And then come follow me. All of a sudden, the author shifts his perspective and looks inward. And maybe it's a little too close for comfort because that is the last thing the young man expects to hear. And that is good storytelling, right? We lay out the events, but then we look on the inside of what is the character feeling? He's extremely sad and disappointed. That's the meaning of crestfallen. He walks away grieving as other translations would have it. Why? Well, because when Jesus speaks, he speaks to the whole person. And more often than not, when Jesus speaks to you, you will experience tears and great discomfort. But in that moment, don't walk away. Instead, stay and let go. It's going to be hard, but do let go of that thing that he's asking you to do. Because 
in tears, you will reap joy that will bring forth freedom. And now the author returns because he's probably uh, listening to Jesus speak. He is one of the disciples. I mean, it is the gospel of Matthew. Therefore, he is one of the disciples. He's among the disciples and he's listening. And it's Jesus's turn to ask the question. As he watched him go, Jesus told his disciples, do you have any idea how difficult it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom? And because Jesus is God, he can respond to that question. Let me tell you, it's easier to gallop a camel through a needle's eye, teeny tiny, than for the rich to enter God's kingdom. Using a metaphor, Jesus talks about the difficulty of entering and experiencing that life in God and with God. Uh, when we have been programmed to live for self-gain, promotion, personal development, etc. Yes, we can interpret richness that Jesus is talking here in this particular case only to deal with someone's financial wealth. But I think the story suggests something more than monetary wealth, because we'll see that in just a little bit. What if this richness that Jesus is talking about is the accumulation of everything in our life that we have been blessed to receive? Could we give it away? And that's the classic question that's usually associated with this sermon. What are you giving up? But perhaps another question that we can ask is, what or who is someone or, so, or is something or someone Keep it parallel that you are holding on to so dearly that you could not imagine your life without. In that thing or that person, Jesus is inviting you to follow him. And he does ask us to give it up. But I think in giving up, he does not mean literally giving it away. I think he means something a little bit more complex than that. But when Jesus asks us that, do we turn around? Do we become depressed and grieve? Because it might mean that our life might not be everything that we have accumulated over the the X amount of years that we've been alive. I'll leave you with that. We'll go on to the next set of questions. The disciples are usually the ones who don't ask the right questions and kind of look a little bit foolish, but this time, actually really good. The disciples were staggered. Why? Because they realized Jesus isn't talking about financial wealth. He is talking about all kinds of blessing and opportunity and things and people in our lives. And he says, and they ask, then who has any chance at all? And, and it's a really good question because they're not, you know, well off. They're, well, 
not most of them, at least, they're fishers, right? They uh, fish and uh, fishermen, they're not fishers, they're fishermen. Uh, they fish or they're tax collectors or they have other occupations. They're not in, you know, the upper class of the religious leaders and the um, teachers. They realize that they are in the process of giving up and following. And so they ask, well, we're still in the process, but who, who's got any chance at all? And this is when Jesus is pretty cool and uh, probably the reason that um, his lessons and his truth continue to resonate with us. Jesus' response is, y'all can't do it, but that's okay. Because as you are called to live a life in God, you're entering a life of trust. And that's not an easy life, but it is a life of possibility where human freedom truly exists. And Jesus looked hard at them and said, no chance if you think you can pull it off yourself. But every single chance in the world, if you trust God to do it. Had the young man stayed for that part, I think he wouldn't have been as disappointed about selling his possessions. Why? Because ultimately God desires good for us and God would never, ever do anything regardless of maybe how hard it feels in the moment, but he wants you all to experience his goodness. And so when he calls you into hardship, it is only because there his goodness and his grace and his justice and his mercy and his love abound. But it is also there that you can experience joy coming out of hardship to gain the fullness of life. But let's step back a little bit and see what is the context of this Matthew chapter 19 passage. In Matthew 19 verses 13 through 15, it is written, one day children were brought to Jesus in the hope that he would lay hands on them and pray over them. The disciples shooed them off but Jesus intervened, let the children alone. Don't prevent them from coming to me. God's kingdom is made up of people like these. And after laying hands on them, he left. Jesus in this moment is hanging out with the kiddos. This is a pretty famous story. And these are the one, these young people are the ones who don't really care about what's good. I mean, they know what's bad because they, they'll get spanked for it eventually. But most of the time, they're pretty carefree. And Jesus is spending time with them. He is kind and loving to the children. And that's something to keep in mind. On the other hand, remember when the young man approaches him? He's like really self-focused and uh, approaches Jesus because he is thinking, okay, well, what can I gain, continue to gain on top of everything I already have? He is greedy and self-righteous, and Jesus tries to move him away from that greed and self-righteousness. 
Jesus tries to move him toward God, whereas the children in this case came to Jesus. It's a little bit interesting. Um, Jesus, for the young man, Jesus tries to move him toward God in a more powerful way than simply telling him to follow his commandments. What Jesus is suggesting is that if you were to really fulfill all of the interpersonal commandments, the six, the second half, then perhaps you would naturally come to honor and live in God's freedom as the children do, thereby following the first four commandments as well, which is to worship one God, not to take God's name in vain and not to build false gods. The fourth one being the one about the Sabbath that we talked about last time. So there is this book I'm reading right now. It's called Living God and the Fullness of Life. It's probably something out of something that I've taken a lot of uh, what this message is about. And in it, Jürgen Moltmann, who is a German uh, theologian, points to, to two central ideas in a particular chapter about what human freedom is. And what this language of possibility that with God, all things are possible. These ideas are Genesis, beginnings, and possibilities. So coming out of um, the book of Genesis and the beginning God created. And the possibilities that we see in Matthew chapter 19. But for God, all things are possible. Moltmann puts in this way. Human freedom in God sounds a little bit like life in God means life and faith, a life in accordance with God, a life that participates in God's energies in the open spirit. And you notice that the whole Trinity is engaged in this experience of freedom. So another way of framing what um, the disciples ask when they say, who's even got a chance? Another translation would have it as then who can be saved? The disciples are asking Jesus the liberation question. How can we be freed from our current condition if we're stuck in a perpetual cycle of our human personalities and tendencies? How do we get out? Can we get better? Can we even become good as God has called us good, even after we have sinned? Jesus says only through the possibility of God who already created and who already called it good. What then does the language of possibility, of God's possibility in particularly, mean? Well, it means that with God, nothing is impossible. And that for every single moment that we are living in, it is the beginning of something possible. The creation narrative continues in all of your lives, but it's possible in the negative and in the positive uh, connotations and outcomes because the negative beginnings would be if you steal, if you cheat, if you lie, if you hate, well, that is the beginning of something that will probably not bring about good results. The tree was planted, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also planted in the beginning. And as soon as Adam and Eve partook of it, that was the beginning of our entire human history. 
and ultimately bringing us to where Christ is. So see every moment as the beginning, but not only in the negative, see it also in the positive, because if you love and if you create and if you care for people, well, that is the beginning of something beautiful. That doesn't mean that it won't, you know, get maybe hurt or destroyed and you'll have to start over again. But it does propose the possibility for some kind of outcome. The language of possibility is here and now in the present, meaning some very difficult things, that it is possible for us to be a part of many beginnings and continuations, that we, are, we were born, but we continue to live. And with every day, we uh, create something new, or we are part of something that is created and that is new. And that really is just the beginning of every day could be considered as that. We are able to dwell and to delight in this world, as we read in Psalm 1 last night. We are able to create and to care for what we have created. We are also able to break relationships and furniture. And we can also mend those relationships and that furniture. There are times when we lose battles and it feels like the stem of our plant has been completely cut off. But then through the process of photosynthesis, we continue to grow and gain reward. Because as human beings, we're pretty cool. We can be extremely excited one moment and so happy and deeply distressed and disappointed at another. And it all happens within seconds of each other. It's a pretty cool thing. It doesn't feel cool when we're experiencing it though. And that is ultimately only possible through God, because in God, there is joy and there is sorrow and we see it in the birth of Christ and in the death of Christ and in the resurrection once again. And right now, we let's let's just like take what's happening right now in the world. We are doing so well. We are so happy, abundant in joy because vaccinations are well underway. But at the same time, we regret what is happening in India. We regret what is happening in actually the rest of the world, India in particular, but everywhere in the world, no one is able to get access to vaccines as easily and quickly as we are, as we are in the United States. So we can be joyful now, and that's right. And we can also grieve for those who are dying for those who are suffocating still. In God, our joy is made complete because in God, we are able to acknowledge that our grief and our lament are inseparable from our joy. And that's really cool and complex and maybe something that we're all gonna keep figuring out for the rest of our life. So returning to the story of the young man, in God, our greed and self-righteousness still exist. We're just like that guy. We're not any better. 
But Jesus has invited us through the story today to come to God who opens the possibility for us to look beyond ourselves in every moment. Even when we're greedy and say, oh, but it's my time or, oh, but it's my energy and I'm so busy and I don't have the capacity to care for another person. It's not up to you. It's up to God because through you, it's impossible. Through God, there is abundant energy and uh, abundant time as well. And ultimately, in God, there is unity and harmony and freedom, all of which are visibly expressed in community. So now we come back again to the idea of community. Why do we always talk about it? Well, because there is really no need for unity unless we're talking about two or more people. Secondly, because there is no need for harmony and there's no such thing as harmony. Uh, and those who are musicians will uh, maybe recognize this is the um, Bach chorales, chorales, which he wrote like over 600 of. They're extremely complex and beautiful pieces of music complex in that sometimes they don't really sound great. Why? Well, because there's dissonance and those sounds aren't supposed to sound well. But you see those little fermatas in every place? Well, those are the points where agreement in the music is found. And so that is the harmony that we're talking about here, is that harmony requires, there are four voices here. And there are how many? There are 16 voices happening on this call and all 16 can work out in the music. They will all be happening at the exact same time. They're perfectly aligned. There will be dissonances and disagreements, but they're temporary. And at the same time, there is some similarity because they are all grouped together and they all relate to one another with one, through a root, which is, okay, I'm getting very musical, uh, music harmony and theory uh, deep, but just bear with me, it makes sense. So harmonies in music work because they are repeated and reintroduced into the music. And that is the music of our community. Why? Because each of us has something to add each of us has something to say, even if you don't really feel like uh, maybe it's relevant, don't worry, we'll resolve it somehow when we hit a fermata and everybody's on the same page in F major. But until then, we'll explore and we will glorify God through the music. If you want, I would strongly suggest, if you can't sight read and play piano, do uh, study the chorales. If you can't listen to them, they're really, really interesting. And they're small, so they're not too, uh, too you know, time-consuming. So I got off track because I got really excited about the harmony and theory and everything. But <laughs> the music in this example, the harmony of music is our community, is our church. And finally, the reason we need community is because freedom is fully experienced when we depend on one another, because alone we are not free. And we know that 
this year and probably in previous years too, in moments when you feel isolated or alone in the house, there is this hollow feeling sometimes, especially initially. And um, it's not a pleasant feeling. But when you're with other people, that hollowness goes away and it frees you up from uh, pressure to figure out things for yourself. So if human freedom ties to community, what does it mean for each individual and the community as a whole? It means that in our community, everybody cares and that everybody shares, regardless of how hard it is to sometimes share and open up and be vulnerable. Know that your community is, as of this moment, planting roots to be dependable, to be trustworthy, and to be your friends in what you're going through. If human freedom is really tied to community, it means that no one is looking to get good with God while their friend is struggling to keep up. It is not me. It is not I. It is we. It also means that we don't interrupt the work of Christ in the church or in the world because it's all about how I'm feeling in this very moment. No, be attentive to what Christ is doing. If Christ is with the children, allow him to be there and then enter in. He'll give you that moment. Don't interrupt. And ultimately, what does it mean for us as a community? That our value is not placed on what we do, but why and how we do it. First, why? Because we believe that participating in God's possibility to change all of us, all of this, to change our families, our communities, our societies, we believe that by participating in community, that God will alter systems of oppression, discrimination, systemic racism, and so on and so forth. And so we participate in this change boldly, not saying that, oh, oh I don't know how my community is going to think about it. No, do it because you're part of something. You're continuing something. And how are we going to do it? Well, Isaiah tells us, read the full chapter maybe today in the afternoon. It's really poetic and beautiful. How do we go out as a community and live as new beginnings and new creations by arising and shining? For the light who is in all of you and radiates through you and the glory of the resurrected Lord is upon you. Today, this light has taken root. In this very moment, here and now, at 1157, at, um, on May the 2nd, 2021, is the beginning of something new, of a possibility for a church who is healing, who is getting back on her knees, getting up off her knees, standing upright, and producing harmony in the midst of noise and calamity that is in the surrounding community. And I believe that it is possible for God to make his light glimmer through this place and through each of you. In like two minutes, I'm almost done. We're about to enter into a renewed communion with Christ. This is where unity 
harmony, and freedom are realized for us as a church. Because as we confess, as we repent, and as we, for, we are forgiven, we are united once more in Christ and with one another, since we're literally doing the same thing at the exact same time, using very similar cups or maybe different uh, cups. It doesn't matter. Because although we are at a distance and coming with different questions before Christ today and doubts, we are united. Amen. And so questions for you to consider today as you step into this place. You aren't interrupting Jesus from talking with the kids because this time is for you. Are you seeking direction? Are you burdened? Or do you feel really inspired? Are you fatigued? Are you physically and spiritually in a place where you can step in to such a time of communion? If you're not, find a comfortable chair. Whatever it is today, come with it. Jesus is listening. And ultimately, he will guide you toward God. And God, who is real, will fill you with the spirit who will carry you towards the manifestation of possibility of all those small beginnings in your life. So that in all that you do, you might love people deeply and love God who loves you and all of his people, because this is where God is free. He loved us first. And now we love. Amen. In that beginning moment, God created and called it good. An expression of love that is a steady rhythm and an everlasting promise. So let's get ready for communion now. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Sully.